Hi, Jen. Tisha. <laughs> it's us again. Again. Sometimes I lose track of like what we're recording when and when things are airing. And <laughs> that's why All I have right. you. That's why I have you. That's why you have me. So yes, we are releasing an episode by Charlene Madden, which yes. everyone's going to listen to and love because we love all the episodes and you do too yeah and it's wednesday june and it's june it's june we're in june, june is now. happening so i have been well busy eradicating weeds from my yard um mm -hmm. my hedge which is super fun but then in between doing that i have been racing around getting my boys ready to go to sleepaway camp it's a big deal well you got you may be saying to yourself like it's june school's not over yet how are your kids going to sleepaway camp they are going to a weekend long camp and it's called camp erin if you are in the grief and bereavement space you know camp erin it's a very well-known organization they run camps all over north america specifically for kids who have experienced um, the loss of a family member or caregiver or person who's very close to them. And my boys are going this weekend and they have never done sleepaway camp. Mm -hmm. They currently sleep in the same bed and because they are three years apart, they are not in the same cabin. Yeah. Which they know and they've met some people and they had a really nice time at they do an orientation and it's a really I'm very excited for them to go. Yeah. I'm gonna like be straight up and feeling a whole like wealth of anxiety about it. Yeah. Not because I don't think they'll be well cared for, but Logan specifically has never been the best at saying like transitioning and saying goodbye and going off to things and he he's not that way anymore generally. Um, mm -hmm. but I think he was for so long and this feels like such a big thing that it's giving me a lot of like anxiety. And then just the whole idea that like they're going away and in the woods and packing lists and like we've just never done this before. Yeah, it's a lot. I don't know. My kids have never gone to sleepaway camp either. I don't know if I'm ready for that. But I went to sleepaway camp when I was a kid and it was not a, you know, a bereaved children's sleepaway camp, but I went to sleepaway camp and it's amazing. So it should be a good experience for them. Yeah. I mean, they, it, like they have, it, it's. And uh, just so awesome that something like that exists. Well, and it's weird. Cause I did say, I go, you guys are so lucky that you get to do this. And I'm like, well, no, because in a perfect world, they would have their dad here. In a perfect um, world, there would be no need for you to do this. That, so I flipped it and I was like, you you guys are so lucky that something like this exists for you. Yeah. Because um, when I started to say it, I saw Logan look at me and I'm like, that's not right. And that's when I flipped it. And what I, what I just consistently hear is how when you pick the kids up at the end of the weekend – there's just like something magic that happens over those two and a half days in being with this huge group of people that are kind of in a similar situation as you. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. 
I mean, does that make sense? It makes complete sense. And when they were telling me, telling us all about the weekend on like a Zoom a couple weeks ago, I was like, this is, I was so excited for them and crushed like in the same breath. I like, I sat through the Zoom crying actually with my camera off. Just thinking about all of these kids from like, I think the youngest you can go is five or six to like the routines there, you know? So it's amazing and heartbreaking all at the same time. Yeah. So that's what's going on in my world. It's a lot. And on the flip side, a positive of all of it is that I get the house to myself for the weekend. <laughs> yeah, which is interesting because it's like the complete opposite of what I'm doing this weekend, which is <laughs> alone with my children for the weekend because my husband's going out of town. So I'm just, it's going to be me and the girls and I am dance momming hard. So yay. But as Tisha said, we are talking with Charlene today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Who, funnily enough, we spoke with so long ago that it definitely took us both a minute to remember the conversation. <laughs> <laughs> Because we have a very, we learned last year in making this podcast that we have to protect our peace and we keep to our Wednesday night recordings and one recording a week. So what that means sometimes is there's a big gap between when we record a conversation and when it airs. So we hope you like the episode and if you do... Can you leave us a review? We really, we really love that. The other thing we love that I feel like people just don't do enough. Like we are ever present on social media. So like send us a message, comment on our posts. Let us know if you like the episode, if you don't, if you love the guests, if you hate the guests, like we want to know, we want to interact with you. Tell us all your thoughts. Yes. Like we like to just talk obviously and just talk to each other and like our guests and, and the show serves us, but we hear like conversationally with the few listeners that we do come across on a day-to-day basis in real life that they enjoy the show and what they like. But, you know, those of you who maybe aren't in our little bubble of day-to-day life, we want to know what you think. So let us know and enjoy this episode. Hi, I'm Jen, and welcome back to Now What? And I'm Tisha. Thanks for joining us and for listening again. We are here today with Charlene Madden, who I actually found through another podcast called Honest as a Mother, one of the co-founders of our Women in Progress Media. So shout out to Amanda. And we reached out to Charlene to see if she would be on our show. So welcome, Charlene. Welcome. Thank you for having me, ladies. Usually what we do is we just say, why don't you kind of tell us your story? I know you've been on a lot of podcasts before, so you probably have a whole thing down. Yeah. Podcasting is relatively new for me. I've only been doing it really since January. So, but the response has been overwhelming and it's just kind Mm -hmm. of fitting into what my passion and purpose is. And that is sharing stories to give hope to other women and men. Mm-hmm. That if you struggle with mental health issues, if you struggle with your feelings of self-worth and all these things that we do, especially as women, that there is hope. Mm-hmm. And um, I struggled for a really long time with that. I was born and raised in Ontario 
And I grew up in a small town called Durham. And it's not Durham region. It's the town of Durham. Okay. And <laughs> I was like, I, that's not a small town. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and I grew up with my grandparents there. And I ended up living with my grandparents because my parents separated when I was three. My dad was a really violent alcoholic. So when my parents separated, my grandparents was where we were placed to live. And my grandmother was an absolutely amazing woman, very strong. I thought she was extremely far ahead of her time. Uh, she believed that women should get a, a good education. They should be really independent, you know, not depend on men. And I probably learned that lesson just a little bit too well. But and as wonderful as she was, unfortunately, my grandfather was a pedophile. And my sister and I, who was living there as well, we experienced nine years of sexual abuse at the hands of my grandfather. And everything came out when I was 12 and uh, my sister was 16. She was four years older mm -hmm. and she was experiencing the worst part of the abuse because of her age. So everything came out and that family unit that I had came to know and love was once again ripped apart. And people have asked why nine years of silence. And for me, I look back on not growing up with my parents. I had this feeling that if I said something, I was going to lose my family. And it was the only family that I knew. And that's why mm -hmm. children stay silent for so long. Women stay silent. It's just that that fear, that insecurity that we have. Mm -hmm. So because obviously the abuse started when you were very young. Mm -hmm. And I think like sometimes kids also just like they don't, I mean, I'm assuming when you were really long, young, you probably didn't even really know that this was not normal. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Am I correct in assuming yeah. that? Or did yeah. you always know it was wrong? I guess a little bit of both. It became so normal. I mean, because this was like a weekly thing, hmm. you know, my grandmother didn't go out and do very much, but she liked to go to bingo every Monday night. So Monday night was the night that as soon as her car would pull out of the driveway, my sister and I would be in bed. And uh, it's funny, this is, you know, where you talk about hypervigilance kicks in. I remember as a child, just laying in bed and listening for those footsteps on the stairs. And I know for a long time, I struggled every time I heard a squeaking stair because it was an old wooden staircase and there was always one stair that squeaked. Mm -hmm. So every time you heard that squeaky stair, you would start to get that panic set in because you knew what was happening. So right. as much as you felt like it had become so normal, you also knew it wasn't right because right. it never happened when my grandmother was there. It was always, you know, the secret and, and he, right. you know, he perpetrated that secrecy of rollover. Don't say anything, keep your eyes closed, face the other way, you know? So it was the secrecy was drilled into us, even as kids. Right. But everything came out when my sister, you know, she kind of had a nervous breakdown and it was a tough situation because here we are kids who are not living with our parents and my aunts and uncles all lived in the area and all of this comes out and it's a small town. Mm -hmm. So everybody knows. And mm -hmm. here we are. And, I, and I'm sure my grandmother was a very proud woman, felt a little bit of shame, you know, with what was going on as well. And 
I remember hearing the whispers of kids at school, kids talk. That's, you know, one thing kids will, they're, they're far braver to ask questions that adults would never ask. And having kids come up and ask because they want to know they're curious because they're hearing their parents talk about it. Yeah. And hearing the kids say, well, my parents say it isn't true. My parents say that, you know, you guys are just troubled kids. You're just trying to cause trouble. And because no, your parents didn't want you. So you're dealing with all of these emotions of knowing it's true, knowing it happened, but almost wishing that you could just say, yes, it never happened. So it just all goes away. Goes away. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and you know, small town. And again, this is like the mid eighties when all of this is going on. And I remember sitting in a social worker, you know, social worker's office, we go into the children's aid and, and I remember the counselor saying, don't worry about it. You're going to be okay. I want you to know you're going to be okay. And it gives me a pat on the back. And I remember thinking, you know, I'm like 12 and a half. I don't know what, okay. What does that mean? This is all I know. Because when you're, yeah, you're 12. You know, mm-hmm. I, as a child, I don't know what okay even means. You know, all I know is the only family I've had that I've known has been torn apart. Right. Yeah. And the only home you've lived in, you've been taken from. Right. And I mean, and I grew up having, you know, my mom was around, but she'd actually moved out West. So I would see my mom maybe every five, six months mm-hmm. okay. and it wasn't anything, you know, steady and, And it was funny because I always remember, I always talk about my mom always showing up with presents. Like, I don't know whether it was her way of easing some of her guilt, but I always expected when my mom showed up that she would have tons of gifts. And I reflect back on it now because my love language is buying presents, right? right? Is is giving gifts, right? Because that's what I learned as a child. So, (laughs) you know, you think back on it and I I look at it and I go, oh, geez, you know, I wonder if my kids' love language is going to be that same thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And my dad, we were just raised to be terrified of him. You know, like my grandmother always drilled in that she was afraid my dad was going to come kidnap us. I had this fear, you know, I wanted to know my dad and I wanted to have a relationship with him. But again, his alcoholism just completely interfered with his parenting abilities. So my relationship with him was very, very limited and struggled. Right. So here I am, I'm 12 and a half from going in, getting ready to go into high school. And, um, I am thinking this is great. You know, I'm going to be around you know, a bunch of new kids, but I'm also going into high school with what I feel is a stigma attached to myself mm-hmm. because everybody that I went to public school with now knows. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I go into school and almost immediately I start struggling with depression because people are still talking about what's going on and I don't know how to deal with it. Cause I don't have any of the, the coping skills to even deal with any of the thoughts that are racing through my head. So very early on, I started dealing with suicidal ideologies, started cutting and drinking heavily. We all start dabbling in high school, I think, but I kind of just threw myself right into it because I just wanted to fit in. I wanted to be like all the other kids. I didn't want to have anything different about me. And I also just wanted to numb the pain. I just didn't want to feel anything. Yeah. And that kind of got me through a couple of years. And then of course I'm writing a lot because that was my out writing. Mm-hmm. I found that I could pour the words out onto paper rather than wanting to kill myself. It was kind of a the healthy outlet that I had found. Mm-hmm. 
And, um, but unfortunately it draws a bit of attention when you're writing really dark and depressing stuff. And school counselor calls me in and um, says, we want you to talk to a school psychologist. I'm like, okay. I spent a whole afternoon, you know, interviewing, doing questionnaires, doing these assessments. And I remember at the end of it, the, the school psychologist saying, okay, um, going by everything that we've talked about today, we're diagnosing you as bipolar manic depressive. And I'm like 15 going 16. And now once again, I'm like, I don't know what that means. Like to me, it just means I'm crazy on top of mm-hmm. being the kid who was molested by her grandfather. So right. now I'm just feeling an even greater stigma. Like it's just stacking up on me now. And mm-hmm. I, you know, and I always think that we have these patterns that happen in our life. And I remember the school psychiatrist coming around, patting me on the back saying, but I want you to know everything is going to be okay. And I'm thinking, <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, I'm so sick of adults telling me that everything's going to be okay, but not really doing anything. Well, but it doesn't sound like they've done anything to help it be okay. Exactly. From what you've told us thus far. Exactly. Anyway. Yeah. No follow-up. No, you know, there was no work. There was a, if you need to talk to someone, come in, book an appointment and you can talk. And I'm like, I don't want to talk about this. This is the last thing. I want to forget any of this happened. Yeah. Right? So who are you living with at this point? Foster care or no, I'm I'm with my grandparent with my grandmother. Just your grandmother. Okay. My grandmother okay. and my sister, my my uh, sister right. that experienced it. My grandfather was arrested. He spent two and a half, three months in jail. That was that was the extent of it, right? Because of his age. So here, you know, we leave the house and we're in, you know, low income housing now, and we're just trying to make a go of it. So, right. okay. so I just kind of throw myself into school and just try to think, cause all I'm thinking of is I just want to get through school so that I can get out of get here. Get out of here. Get the hell I just want to go somewhere where I can just blend in. No one knows me and I can just be another face in the crowd. So yeah. mm-hmm. I get through school and I end up moving away. I actually moved to Kitchener-Waterloo is where I moved with my high school sweetheart. And I'm thinking that life is going to be great. But of course, I'm just yeah. carrying that baggage. And, you know, it was just geography. And that was a pattern that I started to develop was running away. Because, you know, if you run, then you think you can outrun your problems. But yeah. They're tagging along behind you. You can't run far or fast enough. So I am struggling in life. I end up, we decided we were going to have a child early on. So I was 20 when I got pregnant with my daughter, my oldest daughter, and um, 21 when I had her. And then a couple of years later, we have another daughter. And then a few years later, we have a son. And the son was what I was hoping for all along because I really struggled with the idea of having daughters. I struggled with the, the emotional connection, the physical connection, because I had this feeling inside every time I touched my daughters or held my daughters, it almost felt wrong. Mm -hmm. It felt like I was doing something wrong. I didn't want them to think that I didn't want to do anything. I, I hadn't learned what safe, healthy connection was because I'd never really received it. So I struggled with that. When I had my son, it was kind of like, oh, thank goodness, because it doesn't feel wrong. It was way more comfortable, you know? And of course that affects your parenting. And at this point, I'm still drinking a ton and um, not dealing with anything. Everything just kept piling in and piling in. 
And I was 28 when I remember sitting on the couch in my living room going, my kids are going to come home and find me dead because I can't do this anymore. I don't want to be here. I'm tired of pretending like something's got to give. Mm-hmm. And at this point, my marriage had basically fallen apart. We were living together, but there was nothing there. And I remember saying to my husband, I need to move out for a bit. I need to get my stuff together because I'm not a fit parent. I'm not even fit to take care of myself, let alone fit to take care of my children. Right. And so I moved out, moved in with my mother-in-law and thought, okay, I'll have some time to work on myself. But of course I had no skills to work on myself. So what did I do? I threw myself into drinking again. And a month after I had moved out, I jumped into another relationship. And when they say like attracts like, it is so true because I found someone who was extremely dysfunctional. I'd just gotten out of a relationship, alcoholic, drug addict. And on top of it, he was abusive. And at the time I thought, okay, this is perfect. This just fits the narrative that I think I deserve. Right. You know? mm-hmm. And a couple of years into that relationship, it was after an abusive night, he got up and left and I'm sitting there on the living room floor going, I can't do this anymore. And I walked into my medicine cabinet and I took all the pills out and I took them all and quite a few painkillers because he had a back injury. So I thought, okay, that'll do it. And I sat down on my couch, pulled out a pad of paper and started writing my goodbye letters to my three children. And I hope no one's ever had to experience that. And I hope no one ever has to experience that. But that is definitely one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my entire life. Because I'm sitting here going, how can I explain to my children in a way where they're not going to hate me? You know, how, how can I let them know that I love them, even though I'm leaving them? And as I'm sitting there writing and the tears are just streaming down my face, it hits me that I'm doing the exact same thing that my parents did. I'm abandoning my children. Mm-hmm. I am just perpetuating this generational cycle by leaving them. Only this time, there's no coming back from this. And I called a cab and I drove to the hospital and I was sitting at the admissions desk explaining to the lady why I was at the hospital and I collapsed and I woke up, I don't know how long later, but I woke up and I've got tubes down my throat and my partner is sitting in the bed beside me, you know, all crying and all upset, swearing nothing will ever happen again. And uh, he'd actually contacted my mom during all of this. And uh, so I get discharged from the hospital. My mom's like, I think you need to move out West because everything will be better if you move. And I look back now and I go, okay, now I see where my generational running comes from because that's That's what what my mom did. did. So just made sense to her. So that's what I did. I packed my kids up. I moved out West and uh, six months later, my partner followed me out because he swore everything was going to be different. And of course, nothing changed. And um, I still had no sense of self-love. I had no self-esteem. I was still looking for validation from anyone who would validate me that I was worth something. I moved out in 2003. So this went on for 10, 11, 12 years of the same dysfunction. And finally, in July of 2015, he came home and he says, I'm moving out. I'm moving in with someone else. Well, talk about ultimate betrayal. I thought, okay, I am getting left again. 
so he moved out and I convinced myself that I was going to get my stuff together and this was going to make a change. This was your fresh start. This was opportunity. This yeah. what I needed. And two and a half months later, I was sitting at work. I had just finished a shift. I was bartending at the time and police officer walked in and said, can I talk to you outside? He knew me. He had been involved in one of our domestic disputes and I walked outside and he informed me that my ex-partner had committed suicide. And yeah. I was absolutely devastated. I, mm-hmm. I think secretly I'd always kept this hope that, oh, we'd get back together. Everything would just be that fairy tale. Somehow it was going to work out. Yeah. 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 And it wasn't going to happen. And now I had to go tell my children who he had, you know, been involved in their lives for 13 and a half years that their stepdad has taken his own life. And I don't know how I'm going to hold it together through this whole thing. But like I always did, I was really good at just slapping that smile on my face and pretending that everything was okay. And it worked for a couple of weeks. And then I remember sitting with a good friend of mine and telling her, I just had these feelings of anger bubbling up so bad. And she was like, it's okay. You know, anger is one of the stages of grief. And I remember looking at her going, no, you don't understand. I'm not mad that he took his life. I'm mad he did it first because by him doing it first, he's just robbed me of my chance to do it because now I've seen all the pieces that you have to pick up. I see the devastation. I see everybody's hurt. How do I do that now after I've seen everything that people go through? And I was so angry. So I, you know, here I am, I'm just going to make a go of it. I started seeing a psychiatrist because again, I had started getting into some really dark spaces mentally. I mean, I remember sitting on my bathroom floor and in one hand I had a gun cabinet key. And in the other hand I had pills and I was thinking, which is the best way? And I'm thinking my son's downstairs. I don't want him to have to, you know, clean up, you know, Mm -hmm. that's, one thing with women, we think about things like that, right? Yeah. And um, so I just grabbed a knife and and cut myself because it was just an easier way to get that pain and you know out of my body. Mm-hmm. And I started seeing a psychiatrist, and you know, thinking, okay, this is it. This is going to be what I need to to help me get it together. And it wasn't working. And I had actually received a life insurance policy from my partner's my ex partner's death. And I decided I was going to buy a house. And I remember telling the psychiatrist that and how thrilled she was because to her, this was, we were making progress because I'm making plans for the future. Right. Somebody who, who plans to die doesn't make plans. Exactly. But what she didn't understand was my plan was I was leaving a legacy for my children. Yeah. Right. Like I'm going to buy this house. I was actually buying a foreclosure property. So I knew it was worth double what I was going to pay for it. So I was going to set my kids up financially because otherwise they were going to have nothing. Right. And I actually took possession of the house in the September of 2016. And my plan was the following month because I needed a month to get everything in settled, organized. And then I was taking my life. And I remember about a week prior to the date that I had set a friend of mine who I worked with says, Hey, there's this women's workshop. I really want to go. I want you to come with me because I don't want to go by myself. And I'm thinking, this is the last thing I absolutely want to do. Right. She's like, please, I don't want to go alone. I've always been someone who put everybody else's needs before my own. Right. And Mm -hmm. I thought, oh, geez, okay, fine. I'll go. I'll support you. 
Plus, I don't want anybody to know what's going on. So I just got to make it look like, sure, I'm making plans for the future. So Friday night, uh, the workshop started on a Saturday, Friday night before I went and put my hunting rifle into the back seat of my car because I was going Monday morning and I was going to the exact same location that my ex-partner had shot and killed himself. And I was going to do the same. I just had to get through two days. That was it. Mm -hmm. And I remember Saturday morning walking into that workshop and felt sick to my stomach because I'm looking at all these women in this room and I'm like, I don't belong here. Like it just emphasized how out of place and how out of step I felt with my world because I thought, Mm -hmm. here's all these women that are excited about their future and they're making plans. And here I am like two days from now, I'm killing myself. Right. Why am I here? And I thought, okay, you just got to, you know, slap a smile on your face and just pretend. And I sat there for the first half of the day and everything was, you know, there's health and fitness people and financial people. And I'm just sitting here going, none of this is even relevant to me whatsoever. And then the afternoon comes along and a lady gets on stage and she is bald and she talks about self-love and she had been diagnosed with alopecia as a child and had grown up with losing her hair, struggled with self-esteem and felt no self-worth whatsoever. And she's talking away and I can hear this little voice in the back of my head and it's kind of going, well, what about you? And I'm kind of reflecting and I'm like, yeah, how different could my life be if I actually learned to love myself? Right. All the love that I pour out to everyone else, what if I could pour that into myself? Like how different would my life be if I just loved myself? If I stopped needing other people to validate me, to prove my worth, what if I was enough? And of course, I just kind of brush that off and the next speaker gets on and, and she's talking about living with mental health uh, issues and depression and suicidal ideology. And I'm like sitting there going, you know, I'm kind of leaning in. And she's talking about how instead of fighting it, she embraced this as being a part of her. It was something that, you know, she was going to live with, but she was going to learn to live with it in a productive, healthy way. And I'm sitting there going again, I can hear that little voice going, you know, well, what about you? And I thought, yeah, like how different could my life be if I could learn to not have to sit in the dark, but to rise out of it? What if I can learn to be okay? Even when I'm not okay, I don't have to stay that way. Right. And then the next speaker gets up and it's a gentleman and he's talking about how he's, you know, got a a painkiller addiction or he had a painkiller addiction. He was an alcoholic and how he was trying to find the perfect mixture of pain meds and alcohol so that he could make his death look like an accidental death because he sold life insurance. So he knew it had to look like an accident. Right. And he's talking and he happened to get his kids visitation on the night that he found that perfect cocktail mixture. And he was laying on his couch, slowly overdosing. And he heard this voice in his head saying, no, not like this. This isn't, this isn't the way it's supposed to be. And he got his cell phone. He called for help and he went and got clean and sober got help for his mental illness and how he was going around speaking and sharing his story. Now this little voice that's in the back of my Mm -hmm. head is like screaming at me now. And it's like, what about you? Mm -hmm. And I'm sitting here and it was just like this moment where you feel like everything in the room has stopped. 
-hmm. And I'm sitting here going like, am I here for a reason? Like I've just heard three speakers talk about the three things that I need the most in my life. I need to learn to love myself. I need to accept that mental health is part of my life, but I don't have to stay stuck in it. And maybe there's a purpose for everything that I've gone through, every experience that I've had. Maybe I, be, I can take that pain and I can do what he's doing and I can share it to help other people not have to suffer like I had for four and a half decades. And it was in that moment, you know, like you hear people talk about light switch moment. That was my light switch moment. Like I decided in that moment that yeah. this was it. I was in it. I was going to live and I wasn't just going to live. I was going to thrive. I was going to create a life where I was creating impact and I was learning to be happy for the first time. And that just started everything. I went back a year later. I actually spoke at that work, that same workshop. Oh my gosh. And I had one of the speakers that had been at the event that changed my life. He had talked about fear and how much we let fear affect our lives. It holds us back so much. And he challenged us to do some things that we were scared of. So one of the things I, you know, did was I published that book of poetry, like all those poems that I had written as a, as a teenager, just Mm -hmm. trying to survive. I published, Mm -hmm. I self-published it because I thought, you know what, this is me. This is part of my journey. I'm putting, I'm opening it and putting myself out there. Yeah. And I was terrified of rejection and I thought, okay, I'm going to ask someone out on a date, you know, some simple little things like that, that had terrified me. So I did, I asked a gentleman out on a date and he said, yes. And (laughs) we went on our first date in December. And then the following August, we got married and it was like, I made that decision. It was like the universe took a collective sigh as if to say, okay, we've been waiting for you. Yeah, let's go. And everything started to fall into place. And when I spoke at that event the next year, I remember saying before I got off the stage that my purpose and my passion now with sharing my story is that if I could save just one life. And I remember getting off the stage and having a lady approach me and say, you know how you said you wanted to save a life? I just want, you know, you did. And she turned and walked away. Wow. And I get, uh, I have goosebumps. I know. I was just going to say that. It's like, (laughs) I have done, I've done probably 30 podcasts in the last month and a half. And I get goosebumps still every time I say that. And I remember thinking in that moment after she said that, you know, I kind of stopped, I had to catch my breath and I thought, okay, let's go find one more. And that's, you know, what my life is now it's finding that one more. Cause I never know who's going to be that person. That was me sitting in that crowd. Who's going to be that person that's listening to a podcast or, you know, watching a, a video. So for mm-hmm. me, this is just me putting the ripples in the pond, keep spreading them out from those speakers that created those ripples for me. So that's, that's yeah. my story. I mean, obviously we have this podcast because we believe that our stories do have that power. So absolutely. I agree with everything you're saying. I'm interested to know what your friend who made you go to that workshop thinks of all of this now. Yeah. She's, she's extremely happy that I went. (laughs) Yeah. Now, did she have any idea 
that like no. you needed it. Not maybe not like at the depths of everything, but that you would potentially need this or it was just coincidental. It was just, you know, she wanted to go. She wanted someone else to go with, you know, and, yeah. and we actually worked together. We were co-workers. Right. So it just made sense for her to, to go with me. And, and I actually, when I, after I spoke at that workshop, that was the last workshop that that lady that was organizing it had, she kind of said, I need to take a break. I don't want to do it anymore. And I remember it was about a year and a half later and we were at a, a dream or a vision board meeting or something like that, that mm -hmm. someone was hosting. And I remember thinking, you know, I really wish they had those workshops because I know firsthand the impact those events can have. Mm -hmm. and I said, I sure wish someone would host it. And there came that little voice in the back of my head and it said, well, what about you? And I'm going to get a t-shirt that says, what about you? <laughs> and, and I was sitting there going, yeah, what about me? Like, why don't I do my own event? Why don't I host a workshop? I mean, I've been to a couple, I know how to, you know, I know what I want from an event and I want to create impact. So create the impact. So yeah. the very next year I, I, well, that was in January, we had that, that meeting. And then the following November I had the workshop. So, and that girl that came, you know, with me to that workshop, mm -hmm. she actually helped me plan and organize it. So okay. it was a great little turnaround to get to experience that with her. Yeah. Wow. That's so that's so amazing how everything kind of just comes full circle in that way. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. I can't help but be struck by like, it's not just a coincidence that she asked you to go to that workshop and just at that, that time, your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't believe anything that happened happened by chance mm -hmm. at all. I believe that offer was made for me to go. And I said, yes, because that, whether or not I heard it at the time, you know, that still small voice inside me was like, okay, let's go. Cause I wanted connection so bad. Right. And that's what I was yearning for. And that's what I desired so much was connection. I never felt a strong connection with women, strangely enough, probably because I felt so inferior. Like I didn't yeah. feel like a good mom and I didn't feel, you know, like I was definitely not the, the PTA mom and I didn't have it all together. So I think my insecurities just interfered with me developing those relationships with other moms and other women. Right. And I really wanted it. I wanted to feel a connection with anybody at that point. So I think that desire led me to go. And I definitely believe that those three speakers coming up in exactly the way that they came up was done for a reason you know mm -hmm. I definitely believe I was exactly where I was supposed to be at that moment mm -hmm. so mm -hmm. yeah absolutely so you go to this workshop and you have this light bulb moment but like I know your journey also didn't just like magically get better it wasn't mm -hmm. just like oh I had this light bulb moment and now I love myself like what are some of the things that you started to do after that I would say one of the biggest things, and uh, I do one-on-one -on -one coaching with women now, and this is the one thing I say to all of them is that they have to get radically honest with themselves. Because when you can really step back and look at yourself, maybe not through your own eyes, because sometimes our filters are, are pretty um, mm -hmm. fogged up there, but taking that mile high view of my life and going, okay, what's working, what's not working, you know, because I need to know both of those 
So I know where I can put more effort in and where I need to take effort away from. If something's working really well, then I don't have to spend so much time on it. I can take a little bit more time and spend it on the, the areas that aren't working so well. So I think number one, getting radically honest with myself. And part of that was like, you talk about the self-love, you know, I said that event when I walked out and I said, you know what, I'm, I'm okay with being alone. And I actually made that commitment to myself because I was a hundred percent prepared to be alone. I was like, if I am all that I'm going to have, that's going to be enough for me. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if, if I'm going to be the person I'm going to spend the rest of my life with, I need to make sure that I like the person that I'm spending the rest, the rest of my, of my life, life with. with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So I had to look at who do I want to be in order to spend my time with myself, you know, because that makes me a better friend, a better mother, everything mm-hmm. improves when you can just work on that relationship with yourself. And that's where the majority of my time and effort in was just on really analyzing who I wanted to be. And who I didn't want to be as well. We always look at the things that we want, but taking time to look at what we don't want as well is just as important. It's like, who don't I want to be? I don't want to be that needy person. I don't want to be the absentee mom. I looked at all these things and then it gave me direction to work on. That's so good. Sorry. (laughs) I'm like speechless because it's just, you're a pro. I'm like, I, do you have any questions? Well, yeah, because we inevitably have setbacks. Mm -hmm. So I can't imagine that it was all downhill from there. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Cause it seems like prior to this, when you had those setbacks, they'd really set you back Mm -hmm. instead of just like one step back and be like 15. So Mm -hmm. in this time, when you've committed to love yourself and you've committed to like, no, I'm going to be here. And if it's alone, it's alone. And I'm committing to me now and this Mm -hmm. life. How did you handle those setbacks or how did you learn to handle those setbacks? What took you through those times without knocking you back? Yeah, I think I learned to give myself grace. Mm -hmm. And this was probably one of the biggest things I did in my journey in forgiveness, right? I looked at, you know, I remember both of my daughters suffer from mental health issues Mm -hmm. as well. And I remember sitting in a room with a bunch of social workers talking about my daughter because, you know, my daughter had some uh, severe issues that she was going through at the time. And I had actually had to argue with the social workers because I was like, there's something wrong with my daughter. And they're like, no, she's just being a teenager. I'm like, I'm a mom. I know there's something wrong with my child. Like we know. And, And I've been there. So I definitely really know. And I remember having a conversation with the social workers and just saying, you know what, I did the best I could with the tools I had at the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm saying that because I know it's true. Like I really did. Like, I think as moms and parents, we really do the best we can. And some of us aren't raised to have the skills and the tools to do better. Mm-hmm. So I'm saying that, and I left that appointment and I'm thinking to myself, it's like, you know what? My mom did the best that she could with the tools that she had. So did my dad. So did my grandma. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so did my grandpa. You know, a lot of people are like, I can't believe you've forgiven them. And I'm like, not forgiving is me drinking the poison and expecting them to die. You hear that all the time, right? Mm -hmm. So I've given forgiveness to other people for my own sake. So I had to give myself that forgiveness. Yeah. And 
and giving myself the grace to go, you know what, like, I'm always going to suffer with mental illness. You know, it's like having diabetes. And this is what I try to say to people. It's like, you're, you're born with diabetes or something you have. It's a part of your body. It's a physical condition. No one looks down at you because you have diabetes. It's like, yes, I have mental illness. It's something that I have to work on every Every single day. day. And understanding Mm -hmm. that I have dark days. You know, I had a career change a little while back and I was like, do I really want to keep fighting? You know, and then I sit there and I think, remember that lady that said you saved her life? Yeah, we want to keep fighting. So let's keep going. Right. You know, like just shifting, learning to shift my focus. Yeah. And it's you, you learn and it's a skill that's practiced. I mean, like we have to give ourselves grace, but keep going. The more I work on it, the better I'm going to get at it. So yeah, I get triggered. My husband says things and I'll feel those triggers come up. Like I start, you know, my gut wrenches and I'm like, okay, wait a minute let's take a look at this. And again, that's the, the radical honesty. It's like, okay, so what's really going on here? What's causing this emotion? So it's work. You have to be willing to put the work in every single day, you Absolutely. know, if you want to create change. So there's a book that someone was talking about. I was talking to you yesterday. I am not familiar with it, but it's like 90 seconds to change your life. Mm. So it's this yep. idea that if you pause before reacting for those 90 seconds, it like reframes it gives your body a chance to like calm down or adjust to whatever maybe is triggering you. I don't even know how accurately I'm describing this. I have not read the book, but what resonated with me in this conversation is this idea that like when you are triggered or want to fly off the handle or want to start binge drinking, it's that those like 90 seconds can make all the difference mm-hmm. just like taking that beat and I admit that for me that's a very hard thing to do it takes active effort every time mm-hmm. for me when when I'm struggling I what? believe the book is called 90 seconds to a life you love there you go mm. I was looking it up <laughs> but where I was going with all of this is what are some tools that you find help you you're talking like a lot with mindset and, and Mm -hmm. that's obviously huge, but Mm -hmm. sometimes it's like, doesn't matter how much, you know, employing it is like so much harder. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And like, sometimes you get triggered and you feel triggered and you have that a trauma response to something that someone is, has said, or is doing that. Maybe like you said, like you kind of reflect on like, well, wait a minute, why am I feeling this way? But yeah. How do you do that? I I still do a lot of writing. And it was funny because when I started the journaling process, I kind of had a gut reaction where I was really resistant to it because for me, I related writing to being in a dark space, right? Because I always wrote when I was depressed or I was struggling. So when I had to switch over to, okay, we're writing because we need to brain dump, you know, because we've got all these thoughts that are, you know, bottling up in our head and we just need a place for them to go and not judge what I'm writing, you know? So I got in a habit of in the morning, um, getting up and just doing, because I I tend to dream a lot. (laughs) I'll have a lot of pretty vivid dreams. So writing that down and, and then not judging it, just writing, giving myself, setting a timer on my phone and going, okay, so for the next five minutes, I'm going to write, and I'm not going to stop till my timer goes off. Once it goes off, I shut the book and I'm done. I walk away. I've done a lot of work and a lot of training, a lot of reading. Like I'm Mm -hmm. huge on reading as much as I possibly can. 
and learning about different coping skills and, and different things and, and listening to podcasts and hearing how other people are doing it. Because I mean, you never know what's going to click for you. What works for me may not work for someone else. And I'm always like, keep searching until you find someone that you can relate to and find something that yeah. works for you. Yeah. I wonder about your journaling. Do you ever go back and read them or no, you just write it all out and then that's the end of it. That's the end of it. Because if I go back and read it, I find I'm judging it. Right. Right. And I mean, yeah. and I'll judge it. I'll judge it on everything from, oh, there should have been a comma in that sentence to, <laughs> well, I think I spelled that word wrong. Right. Because we're so judgmental with ourselves. Like we are so hard on ourselves. Yeah. To then even so, judging like how you were feeling in that moment or whatever. Right. Like, yeah. Because I mean, that. like that's, that's the worst thing you can do is judge the emotions that you're feeling. Right. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, your emotions are just the thoughts that are coming from your subconscious. Right. It's creating the, the thoughts and the feelings. So it's like, I just, I let it go and I give myself the space to just, you know, it's over, it's done with, let's move on with the rest of the day. And I always do a gratitude practice in that as well. So I always do a gratitude in the morning and a gratitude at night, especially for yeah. me, because I can get overwhelmed and can tend to think on the negative side. Yeah. So when I'm like, a lot of people were like, oh, just gratitude in the morning. I'm like, no, you need to gratitude at night because then you're going through your entire day looking yeah. for things to be grateful for. Yeah. Right? So. I also like the gratitude, but I don't do it in the morning. I only do it at the night or in the evenings. Yeah. Like sometimes I don't do it right before I go to bed, but I like to do it in the evenings because I find that that is helpful for me. But as you said, like different people are going to find different things helpful. I'm not huge on meditation because I struggle to keep my brain quiet. And of mm -hmm. course, then I, I judge myself on not being able to keep my brain quiet. But I got my Reiki practitioner certification, because part of dealing with my trauma in my life, I developed fibromyalgia. Yeah. So I was in pain, and I wanted to find medication free ways to deal with pain levels. And of course, part of that is el eliminating stress in my life. So yeah. I started my morning routine. That's how I really started and anchored in my morning routine was I go in in the morning, I do my, my meditation, I do my Reiki treatment, I do my reading and I do my journaling and gratitude. So I yeah. think if you can start your day out on, you know, mm -hmm. like morning routines are really, really important and just finding something that starts your day out in a really clear, balanced way yeah. is so I helpful. I mean, it's a little bit different, but I used to just like get up in the morning. It was get up in the morning, get the kids ready. I would take my um, breakfast. Like I would eat it in the car while I drove to work and it was just go, 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 go. And I guess it was maybe when things first kind of like shut down and I was working from home. So it wasn't like get the kids out the door and get them to school and get myself to work that I started sitting down and just eating breakfast in the morning, mm -hmm. which seems <laughs> so simple, but it's been game changing for me. Mm -hmm. And like now things are open back up and I'm going to work again, but I always make time to just like take that time to just sit by myself mm -hmm. <laughs> and just eat. It sounds so simple, but just like to nourish my body. So that's my new routine. And if somebody took that away, I don't think I could function again. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I start my clients right? like out. I, I start them out making a commitment to five minutes every morning. It's like if you have to get up just five minutes earlier to just take five yeah. minutes for self care, right? Yeah. Whether it's just sitting, having a cup of coffee without the kids around you, or, you know, yes. yeah, when you have your kids, your morning is like, it's hectic. Right. So if you can find a way to just give yourself five minutes. Right. And you know what? I think it's I really like that advice in a lot of ways, because sometimes you read these like, I don't know, I think I've read like the miracle morning. And I think there's like a a 5 a.m. something another book that I read about 5 a.m. I'm like, I can't get up at 5 a.m. Like that is just not who I am. I also read a book that told me that if you tell yourself that you're not like you are a morning person, you're just telling yourself you're a morning person and that's a limiting belief. And so I tried to like unteach myself that idea. And like, now I'm just like, you know what? I'm not a morning person, mm-hmm. but I can take five minutes or 10 minutes to just sit and do something for myself. This is something really great to teach your kids too, right? To yeah. take five minutes in the morning, because I think it is so important for your kids to see self-care. So teaching your kids that, Hey, we're going to take five minutes this morning, if you can. And I, I completely understand. Cause I, like I said, I had three kids and it was <laughs> yeah. hectic. mornings are hectic. Mornings are extremely <laughs> hectic. Just like, I think you're absolutely right. It's okay for your kids to see you taking five minutes to yourself. It is vital that your kids see it. That's been like a whole part of my journey is just like, I felt like I had to be on and at their back and call at, you know, every moment of the day. Mm -hmm. And really what I need is like that five minutes. I also really value my quiet time. Like I need to go into my bedroom for half an hour and just Mm -hmm. be alone after work. Mm-hmm. Like, and that makes, and that actually makes me a better person. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it makes me a better parent. Mm-hmm. I'm calmer. The kids are calmer. My husband's calmer. Like it, it trickles down, right? When the women take, actually take that time. And I think it's a very different mindset than, you know, my mother or my grandmother had. Absolutely. Where it was more a woman's job is to. Yeah. I mean, a cultural mind shift that has to happen, right? Cultural and generational. I mean, we're just taught that women are supposed to be the givers. Like we're supposed to be caretakers and we're supposed to look after everyone else. And we do it. We do it to the point where we're collapsing, whether it's physically, mentally, you know, and it's okay to fill your own cup. I'd like to think we're starting to see a shift because I think for a long time, women didn't work. So that's what they did. Their, their work was their family. And so Mm -hmm. their needs got put aside and then women started working and didn't shift any of that. Right. We're still taking on all of the family and not taking any time for themselves. But I think now like more women like you are out there saying you want to take that time for yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think also like, I see it in the generation after me Mm -hmm. that a lot more 
women are starting to see the value in taking care of themselves and doing the work to heal because that is how we stop those generational cycles. Absolutely. Right. Is when we start dealing with our own trauma so that we're not parenting from that, that place. Right. How old were your children when you started making this shift? Oh, well, that was 20, 2016 when I moved into this house. So that's only six years ago. So my son was 16. My middle daughter would have been 18. Mm-hmm. And my other daughter would have been 22. Were they living at home? No, my son was the only one. My daughters had all, you know, they'd um, left. Yeah, yeah, they had left. My daughter was in university. Mm -hmm. Both my daughters were in school. So, yeah, I imagine they must have noticed quite a difference in you, though. Yeah, it's 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 funny because, you know, like to hear I haven't done, you know, I don't do what I do for any accolades whatsoever. I do it for, because it's my, like my passion to do it. Mm -hmm. And I remember having my daughter say to me, because actually this last year I had to do my workshop virtually because of COVID. And I actually had asked my oldest daughter if she would lead the meditation session on Sunday morning, because she had started a little podcast. And I really, to me, it was really important to have her be a part of it. Yeah. And, and I remember afterwards it was over and she texted me and she's just was like, I just want you to know how proud I am. And I was like, <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> right. Like, I mean, you know, to hear that from, from yeah. your kids, it's like, I don't need it. You know, again, it's like the validation is, is not needed, but it sure was It's still nice. It was still appreciated. <laughs> right. So of so, course, yeah. of course, yeah. I think it's okay to still like the validation or to mm. like those comments. It's yeah. the difference between needing it. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Like you don't need that validation anymore, but it's still nice to have. It's still yeah. nice to be acknowledged and recognized for yeah. what you're doing. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Are you, you're still running workshops I do the workshop once a year. I run it every November, usually the yeah. second weekend in November. So, cause I do work a full-time job. Plus I do my yeah. coaching on the side. So yeah. it, uh, life is pretty, pretty hectic and busy, but so I enjoy doing that. And I love, I just love to have other speakers come in and I love to have women sharing their stories because I'm a firm believer that that's where impact is created when we can hear, because I know personally, I knew other people had suffered from child abuse and I knew other people had mental health Mm -hmm. issues and I knew everyone suffered from this stuff. But when I heard the stories so raw and authentically from other people, that's what impacted my life. So I just want to be able to provide that. Yeah. Cause you can know that other child abuse survivors exist. Mm -hmm. You can know that you can read the statistics to find out there's a whole lot. Exactly. But nobody talks about it. Mm -hmm. So then that can leave you like, even though, you know, there's others, you're not necessarily getting that. Like you said, that raw Mm -hmm. story from someone that you can really relate to and connect and see how 
you know, other people are, are coping with it. Yeah. And that's what I was going to say. That's that connection once again, right? Like you, you feel you can identify with someone and go, you know, oh, it's not just me. Like they're feeling the same way, you Mm -hmm. know, so connection is, connection is key. So, yeah. And that's, I mean, Jen and I both have our own stories that kind of led us to even making this podcast. And it really is so much about just like trying to, you know, tell, show people that they're not alone, mm-hmm. right? Hoping that people might hear a piece of somebody's story, hear something that worked for somebody else. And even like, we're also related in how as an outsider, you can support somebody who's going through something and we don't know how to respond. Mm -hmm. Like that's another piece that we kind of are hoping get across Mm -hmm. to our listeners, how to be to others. And I'm wondering if there's anything you can kind of think of that people did for you that really helped support you in your journey. Try not to giggle when you're asking that because my mind's already already going. I'm thinking to myself, it's like, please don't pat anybody on the back and tell them it's going to be okay. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Don't tell anybody it's going to be okay because people don't know what okay is. Right. And you can't promise that to somebody. You really can't. I think what was important for me is, is being able to, um, you know, find someone number one that I could really trust. And I felt safe with. And that was difficult, you know, for me, but knowing, knowing that there are people out there that are safe that you can have that conversation with, but knowing that sometimes people just need to talk, not feeling like you have to fix it. And sometimes that's really hard for us women because we're fixers. Mm -hmm. We want to comfort. We want to, you know, we want to make everything better. Being able to just step back and hold space for people to let them feel the emotions, yeah, you know, feel the feelings, you know, it's important to, to give someone enough respect that you'll let them experience whatever emotions they're going through. And you can just hold space to be there and, and be what they need you to be, not what you think they need, because it's, you know, we tend to go, well, if that was me, this is what I would want. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that whole, you know, that do onto others as you'd have done to you drop that concept, right? Like that's not a healthy concept for this because just because you would want someone to hug you or comfort you is not what that other person needs, you know? So, you know, I've had people, you know, that have broached subjects to me and stuff, and I will just come right out and ask, what do you need from me right now? Like you tell me what you need, what do you need from me in this moment? And I will do my best to give you what you need. If you just need me to listen, I'll listen. If you need me to hug you, I will hug you. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not going to tell you what I think you should do because I think ultimately most of the time we know what we should do. It's just getting quiet enough to actually listen. Well, I think I like a good practice. Something that's come up in a support group I'm in is when somebody starts to like talk to you, like, do you just need to vent or do you want to like work this out together? Mm-hmm. And, and making that distinction, 
I yeah, think. and I, I say that with my own daughter. Yeah. Do you want me just to listen or are you looking for advice or do you just need to talk? Because it gives me clarification on how yeah. engaged I need to be, number one. Yeah. You know, like, of course, I'm going to listen to you, but I need to know if afterwards I need to process an and have something to say. Just, yeah. Exactly. So, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Because, you know, I don't know, we've probably all done it or had it done to us where like you're venting and then someone's offering you advice. You're like, I don't want you to fix this. Like, I just you can't let me complain this. about it. <laughs> or like, you can't fix it. Yeah. So much can't is not fixable, mm -hmm. but you still need to like get it out. Right. But we're uncomfortable not being able to help those we care about. We're uncomfortable with those harder emotions and harder feelings and harder things. We're uncomfortable with our discomfort. Yeah. Cause that's, that's what, what it, I mean. What it, it really, really is. is. Yeah. yeah. I know. Cause I'm like, I talk to, you know, like, cause I'm very open and honest with my life and, you know, like if, if basically if someone will stand still for five minutes, I can share my story with them. Right. Because I'm thinking this person may need to hear what I have to say. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's kind of funny. Cause you watch people's like I, well, I shouldn't say it's funny, but I watch people squirm, right? Like in an LC, okay. their discomfort in it. And, you know, and again, they're like, oh, oh, that's terrible. And I'm like, and I don't have that discomfort, discomfort level anymore. That's gone. And even like, you know, because I, I don't drink anymore, I quit drinking. So just seeing the, the discomfort level in people when I say, oh, I don't drink. Right. And they're, you know, there's just that whole, whole discomfort. And I, and I usually let people know. And again, that's giving people space to sit in their discomfort. You know, mm -hmm. I'll just give them some time to process that process it yeah yeah so. make of that what you will yeah yeah do, you don't offer, you don't owe anybody an explanation for not drinking no. exactly if somebody was listening to your story and they could take away one thing what would that be that you're worth it even when you feel like you know you're not doing everything the way you think you should do it. You know, if you think I'm blowing it today as a parent, I'm blowing it today as a wife or as a, a worker, whatever it is, tomorrow is a new day. And I know that sounds really cheesy, but it's, you know, going through my recovery from drinking, going through my recovery from myself and my mental health. I always know that, mm -hmm. you know what, tomorrow is going to be a new day and today may suck but tomorrow I get to choose how that day is going to be. So, and I always just choose to, you know, start the day out with a fresh thought of, you know what, today's a great day to be alive. So. Mm -hmm. That's great. Cause that's awesome. Yeah. yeah. You're worthy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And it's so easy. I feel like to think that you're not, no matter what yeah. your situation is or your lot in life or whatever, I think we all, mm -hmm struggle, I think, with feeling that we're worthy of Absolutely. good or whatever. Yeah. And it's apparent in your story that you had lots of days where you didn't think you were worthy. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, you yeah. didn't have people showing you that you were. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like it happens a lot that people are not shown that they're worthy and then have to kind of get to a point where they have to figure out how to do that for themselves. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. 
So thank you self, so much. Self-love, it's it sounds corny, but it's pretty important. So yeah. yeah. And like just having like self-compassion, self-love. Mm-hmm. Well, and even owning on the days that maybe you don't love yourself so much that you're still you're worth you're worth getting through that. Because mm-hmm. tomorrow's a new day. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Thank you so much, Charlene, for taking the time. You're welcome. And I always like to say, if I have the opportunity that if anybody's struggling and they feel like they're sitting alone in a dark space, reach out to me on Facebook, social media. We'll have all of her links in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. I I just, I want people to know that, you know, number one, it's okay to not be okay, but you don't have to stay that way. And if you're ever feeling in a dark place, reach out because I will come sit it may be virtually but I will sit in the dark with anybody until they're ready to step up into the light I don't want anyone to ever feel like they're all alone so mm-hmm. That's and thank you ladies for doing yeah, what you're doing. a human being I'm out sharing my story but you guys are doing the work of providing the platform so you guys are creating ripples yeah. that you'll never know how far they go so yeah. thank you for what you do that's the goal Thank you. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Now What Pod. If you've enjoyed this episode, leave us a review. Your ratings and reviews help more people like you find our podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and share this episode with someone you think would love it. You can find us on social media at the Now What Pod. Until next time, we're Tisha and Jen. Remember, your story matters and you do too.